I want to direct your attention to the Word of God in Psalm 110. I, you had passed out to you Psalm 110 in the New English Translation, or known as the Net Bible, that I'll be preaching from. But before we return to that text, let's read it together in the English Standard Version that's on your worship guide. And you can join me in the dark print as we read through the psalm. A Psalm of David. Yahweh says to my Lord, Set it my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. English Standard Version. Father, in a moment now, we're going to turn to consider the teaching of this psalm. And we know that your word is very important, and we know that this particular passage is very important because of how it is used in the rest of the Bible. And so we pray for and really need the presence and blessing of your Holy Spirit as we seek to consider this portion of your word. So guide me as I try to speak on it and guide all of us as we listen to your word this day. Give us attentive ears, give us receptive hearts and fill our hearts with gratitude for the revelation of yourself and your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Psalm 110 the interpretation of this messianic psalm is contingent upon the proper identification of the speakers in each of its sections. And we know this primarily because of the way Jesus himself uses this psalm in his own teaching. We should note that King David is speaking in the psalm and it's important that you understand that the subscription, that is where it says a psalm of David, is part of the inspired text. And as being part of the inspired text, it guides us in the interpretation of this psalm. And again, we know this because of how Jesus used the psalm. So we read, a psalm of David. Yahweh says to my Lord... Sit at my right hand. Now, I mentioned that the interpretation, or the proper interpretation of this psalm is contingent on us understanding who is speaking when and to whom. Amen. So the first speaker is David, the psalmist. But what he says is what Yahweh says. And now, how does this work? 
Well, what he does is he quotes an utterance that he heard Yahweh make. So when did this happen? Well, we're not told when it happened. But we do have a pattern of something similar that happened later in the history of Israel with the prophet Daniel in chapter 7, a very famous messianic passage as well. So my understanding or my way of interpreting what happened is that King David, perhaps he saw a vision, but we do know that he heard this dialogue, this speaking from God. Because King David is speaking as a prophet. So King David is speaking to his Lord, to his ruler, in a prophetic declaration, possibly based on a vision he saw in which Yahweh spoke to this other figure. So compare this with Daniel's vision in chapter 7, where Daniel records, I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So, a psalm of David, and here is Yahweh's proclamation to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So David records a conversation or a statement that he hears Yahweh make to the Messiah, Mm -hmm. to this figure that David says is my Lord. Now, don't fail to notice the the great importance of this. This is King David. King David is God's chosen king. He, He chose him above all others to be the king of Israel, and he blessed him above all others. He showed him great mercy and grace and favor. And King David, the greatest king in all of Israel, says that he has a king our Lord over him. So King David speaks what he heard Yahweh say to this messianic figure whom David says is my Lord. Now we know that this is the proper interpretation because this is how Jesus interpreted the psalm. If you look in Mark chapter 12 and verse 36 and following, this is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and to the scribes. In fact, Jesus initiates the conversation. Uh, he's, he's asking them. They've been asking him a lot of questions, and now he asks them. Well, let me ask you about this psalm of David. I'm using a little informality there. So this is what Jesus says. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Set it my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So the content of the psalm is such that we see that King David, the chief king of Israel, the one of God's own choosing, testifies that he has a king and lord over him, one of God's own choosing and appointment. So Jesus makes the point by asking the question of the Pharisees and scribes. David himself says this. He calls someone his lord. So how is he his son? 
Because you see, the, the Messiah is the son of David. And so Jesus said, well, how is he the son of David? And he interprets this by what David, in this vision, that I'm saying it's a vision, he heard Yahweh say these words. The Lord says, Yahweh says, to my Lord, to my king, to my master, sit at my right hand. Well, if, if uh, he's David's son, how is he also David's Lord? Because the son of the king is not the Lord. The king is the Lord. But David says he has a Lord who's over him, but he is his son. This is his descendant, a descendant from the line of David. And this is very important because this is what is true about the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is from the line of David as well as from the line of Abraham. And that this is part and parcel of the gospel is made clear by Paul himself. I believe it's in Timothy where he makes the statement uh, that the gospel that I preach to you is based on this great truth that the Messiah is the son of David and the son of Abraham. This is my good news. In other words, he's saying that God's bringing about the fulfillment of this promise is part part of the gospel. So what's the, the crucial thing about the gospel? Well, there's a lot of crucial things about the gospel, obviously, but the first one is who the Savior is, right? In other words, if we don't know who Jesus Christ is, Jesus Messiah is, if we don't know who he is into his nature, his purpose, then we miss what God's salvation is because we can only be saved by God's appointed Savior. And his appointed Savior is one who shares his nature the nature of deity, as well as shares our nature that is of humanity. So the incarnation, which we celebrate when we we acknowledge that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary uh, at this time of year, is crucial. Who Jesus is makes a tremendous difference. If he's just a prophet, he cannot be the Savior. He can only be a guide. If he's only a holy person, he can only convict us of our own sins, not lead us out of it. No, he is one who shares our nature, but who also shares the very throne of God himself. This is what Yahweh says. Here's Yahweh's proclamation to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Well, what is the right hand of God? Well, the right hand of God is his hand of power. It's his hand of the execution of his purposes, of how he brings about his will, how he brings about those things which he has ordained. So this is the first point that Jesus makes, and therefore it's our first point, that this Psalm of David is a messianic psalm that David himself acknowledges that he has a Lord over him, and this one who is Lord over him is one who shares the very throne of Yahweh. For he sits at his right hand 
until his enemies are made his footstool. Now, the psalmist goes on, David being the psalmist, to declare in other parts of this psalm indirect statements that he has heard. Perhaps one is also a major statement, I don't know, but from my reading of it, it seems that he goes into a sort of an indirect mode when he says, Yahweh extends your kingdom from Zion. So this is not a direct quote from the mouth of God, but it is one of interpretation or one of further statement that was made that, that David is communicating. Yahweh extends your dominion from Zion. And here's the, here's the commandment. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So, I want us to look at other scriptures because you may not know this, uh, but some of you do know this, that Psalm 110 is the most quoted verse. Psalm 110 verse 1 is the most quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New Testament. And it's quoted numerous times. I'm going to read a few of them to you. This is going to be sort of bullet, okay? But here we go. In the New Testament, especially the phrase at the right hand, this is the only time in the Old Testament that you find this expression. It is quoted then in the New Testament a number of times. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, is the primary one. Listen to Hebrews 1, 3b. After making purification for sins, he, that is the Son, speaking about Jesus of Nazareth, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Or verse 13 of Hebrews 1. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? That's a direct quote. Or Hebrews 8, 1. Now the point is, if, now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Hebrews 10, 12 and 13. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Or Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But lest we think that only the author of Hebrews does this, listen to Paul in Romans 8.34. Who is to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Or Colossians 3.1. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. At the right hand of God. Wow. Or 1 Peter 3.2. Peter now, speaking about Jesus, says, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. So, in the New Testament, 
in the writings of the apostles, this quotation from Psalm 110 plays a crucial role. Where is Jesus? Where Jesus today is at the right hand of the majesty on high. And this is the testimony of the scripture. In Mark 16, 19, we have a summary with reference to the appearances of Jesus after his resurrection. And this is a summary. So when the Lord Jesus, after he has spoken to them, that is to his apostles, to his disciples, was taken up into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, how important this is and how it testifies to the identity of Jesus as being deity in humanity is found in Jesus' own statements in his trial before the high priest. Now, this trial and Jesus' statement is recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. In Matthew 26, in Luke 22, and in Mark 16. I'm going to read only one of them to you. Jesus has been asked a bunch of questions. He's being interrogated and he says nothing. He makes no statements. And finally, in absolute frustration and anger, the high priest demands of him an answer. He says to him, Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And when Jesus said this, the high priest tore his garments, accusing him of blasphemy. And this is why Jesus was condemned to death, because the false witnesses couldn't agree. But out of Jesus' own mouth, he makes the true confession. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am he who came forth from the Father who will go back to the Father. I am the one who shares the very throne of the Father. And you'll see this at the end of time when the Son of Man comes in power and great glory. But this was not the end of the matter. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, so the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, some 10 days after Jesus ascends into heaven, begins his inaugural sermon. And he says in verse 34 of Acts 2, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Set at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the interpretation that I placed on Psalm 110 is the proper interpretation. It's shown by Jesus' own use of Psalm 110 in his question to the scribes and Pharisees in Mark 12, 35 through 37, which we previously read. And you can also find that recorded in Matthew 22, verses 42 through 46. If then David calls him Lord... How is he his son? So this is the first 
teaching, the first point of Psalm 110. The voice of King David, who testifies that he has a Lord over himself. And he knows this because he heard the second speaker, that is, he heard Yahweh proclaim to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, a footstool for you. To quote Derek Kidner in his very brief but very uh, most quoted commentary probably on Psalms, says this, this passage teaches that the son of David, the promised one, is Yahweh's appointed ruler and that he shares the throne. Yahweh rules through him. Jesus is the king of the kingdom of God. So in Psalm 110, verse 1, here the royal speaker addresses the more than royal speaker, the one who is himself, Messiah and God. Now, Psalm 110, verses 2 and 3, is an inspired comment on the declaration of verse 1. In other words, David is speaking as a prophet, but again, he is conveying what he has heard communicated between Yahweh and this one, whom he's going to be later identified as his son. So, taking a cue from Peter's Pentecost Day sermon, it seems that Peter and later Paul uses this declaration in reference to Christ Jesus' ascension and his current reign. So Psalm 110 is usually associated with the ascension of Christ. In other words, what specifically is under consideration in this psalm? Well, it is the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ after he has made purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the Father on high. And this is why this phraseology found its way into the Apostles' Creed. So that very statement is founded in the very words of Scripture in the Psalms and in the New Testament. So David is the one speaking, continues his prophetic oracle in verses 2 and 3, which is in many respects a picture of Christ's current reign from heaven. So, Let's look at that. I'm going back to my handout net Bible translation. Yahweh extends your dominion from Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people willingly follow you when you go into battle. On the holy hills at sunrise, the dew of your youth belongs to you. Now, verse 3 is, uh, it seems to just be sort of thrown in there, but it's not. Because where do the soldiers usually come from in an army? They come from the youth, right? They come from young men in their prime. <laughs> uh, beginning around age 18 up to around 30, or in the early 30s, those are the prime people from whom the soldiers are taken, they, who, who go forth into battle. So it's that kind of image that's being used uh, by the psalmist. Your people willingly follow you when you go into battle. But when it, 
where is Christ in the battle? If he's reigning from heaven currently, where is the battle? Where, what battle is he talking about? What is going on? <clears throat> now to give you a, a preview of where I'm going in the psalm, <clears throat> we have three movements. The first movement is David's testimony <clears throat> that he has a, a lord or a king over him, the Messiah, and he bases that on what Yahweh himself said to him when he says, sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In the second movement, he now speaks about the rule of this Messiah from heaven in the current reign. I'm saying in the current reign. Now, in the current reign means from the day of Pentecost on. After the ministry of Christ on earth, among primarily Israel, and he makes a sacrifice for the sins of his people, he is received back into heaven. He ascended back into heaven. But in heaven, he remains the king of the kingdom of God. But now, uh, the kingdom of God is that rule of God on earth that's talked about in the prophets, that's talked about in the Old Testament, and is talked about in the New Testament. In fact, the gospel is equated with the kingdom of God. You can easily see this if you go to the, the very last chapter of the book of Acts, where Paul is preaching for two years from a house, a rented house in Rome, and he is preaching about the kingdom of God. Well, what did Paul preach about? Well, you can read his sermons, summaries of them. He preached about the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and how, how he works in saving his people and bringing them into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light. And Jesus himself testifies of this work of his when he says that, Anyone who believes on him, those who believe on him, are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So, King Messiah rules in the midst of his enemies. So let's explore this second point, okay? Let's explore the current reign of Jesus from heaven on earth. How does he do that? He does it by means of the Holy Spirit, that is, the paraclete, the one sent in his name who bears his presence, who applies his work. He does it by means of the Holy Spirit and his word, that is, the word of the Spirit, which was given to the prophets and the apostles. In other words, the sacred scriptures. So the current reign of Jesus from heaven on earth is by means of the Holy Spirit and his word among and through his people. In other words, God reigns in the lives of his people. He sends his spirit to take up residence within them. They become citizens of his kingdom. And he rules over their lives by means of his word applied to their lives by the sacred scriptures that the Holy Spirit himself inspires. And through his people, he reigns in the world by means of holy warfare, 
against the kingdom of darkness. Often we hear the confession of Peter in Matthew 16 as only a defense. But it's more than a defense, it's also an offense. That means it's not just that God's church, God's people are protected, but that God's people also make advances through spiritual warfare against the forces of evil in the proclamation of the gospel in which people are conquered, conquered by the almighty sovereign grace of God. And when they are conquered, they are transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, making enemies of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ into the ranks of the redeemed and become soldiers, foot soldiers, in the army of the Lord. Matthew 16, Jesus speaks about his church. He speaks about the confession of Peter. He speaks about Peter himself. When Peter makes this great confession, this is the great confession upon which the church is founded. Who is Jesus Christ? You are the son of the living God. Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. And Jesus said to Peter, you know flesh and blood, you didn't figure this out on your own and you didn't learn it from a teacher. It was the Father who has revealed this truth to you of who I am. And upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In other words, the gates of hell will never conquer God's people, God's community, Christ's church. But we're thinking often of only defense as if we are in some kind of garrison but we need to expand our vision. We are not just in the garrison. We go forth from this place with the glad tidings, with the feet that are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And in so doing, we engage in spiritual warfare. And when people come into the kingdom of God, they experience the benefits of that kingdom. Paul tells us what they are in Romans. He says, the kingdom of God is not meat or drink. So it's not just a physical manifestation here on earth. It is a spiritual reality in the hearts and lives of people. That is, what comes from the presence of the Spirit of God within them, which is, what does he say? The kingdom of God is not meat or drink, but righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. Those are the benefits of a relationship of reconciliation with Almighty God that was made possible through the once-for-all sacrifice for His people on the cross of Calvary. The kingdom of God is not meat nor drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 14, 17. And Paul in Colossians 1, 13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And Jesus said in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And Paul 
in Acts 26, verse 18, speaking about his mission, says, his mission and the mission of all who bear the tidings of Christ in the gospel proclamation is to open their eyes, the eyes of the Gentiles, the eyes of the unbelievers, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now notice it involves turning, that's called repentance, and it involves faith, that's putting our confidence and trust in the work of Christ who on the cross has taken care of our sins so that we receive the forgiveness of our sin. How does this work? How does this work? Well, you see, Jesus is engaged in holy warfare in the effectual grace of the Holy Spirit that accompanies the preaching of the Word of God. God works in the unregenerate heart and blind mind to enable a person to understand and to believe on Christ Jesus, to grasp him. John 6, Jesus says, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Example is given to us in Acts 16, verse 14, of Lydia. One who heard us, Paul says, was a woman from Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul so that she believed and was baptized and became a member of Christ's community. Acts 13, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, that is the proclamation of the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. This is what the word of God says. Men do not believe on Christ by their own free will. It's not that we just have these neutral choices. Man in his natural state has a will that's captive by sin and darkness in Satan. He must be freed from that captivity in order to believe. Christ must break the chains. Christ must open the eyes. And he does so through the Holy Spirit using the word of God as it is taught or proclaimed or shared. He does it in his appointed time. So here's the second point. That is that Jesus himself is the first one. He is God's appointed ruler who shares the very throne of God. And the second is about the work of this ruler, that he is reigning from heaven over the kingdom of God that is present in the earth today in its hidden form. That means it's not a socio-political kingdom. We do not bring in the kingdom of God by taking some nation and making that nation bow down to the Mosaic law of the old covenant. That does not convert the hearts of men. It didn't do it in the old covenant and it doesn't do it now. 
it reveals our sin and it tells us how far short we are of God's ideals, but it has no power of conviction. It has no power of regeneration. It has no power of sanctifying us. It tells us the pattern. It shows us what we should be and what we should do. But the power must come from the spiritual life that's regeneration by the Holy Spirit who gives us a new heart, a new mind, and a new will. But no one who claims to be born again will evidence it by a love for and a following after the Lord Jesus Christ. For he who says he loves God and has no use for God's people, the apostle John tells us, is a liar and the truth is not in him. So it's not just mere statements. Well, I believe that to be true about Jesus. We must believe personally upon him. We embrace him by faith. It's the spirit of God that opens us to the word of God so that we receive and believe. But he goes on from that. Not only is the Lord Jesus Christ our royal king, but the second point is now the third movement in the psalm. If you go back the translation I gave you that's broken into three parts, or four parts, really. Yahweh makes this promise on oath, and he will not revoke it. You are an eternal priest after the pattern of Melchizedek. After the pattern of Melchizedek. So this is a very important truth. It's related to us in the New Testament, and it is spelled out for us in great detail in the book of Hebrews. Uh, I was doing a a podcast yesterday, and then I was thinking about a podcast that I I probably should do, and that is one where I ought to talk about uh, how how we need to uh, approach God's Word by reading certain books, certain books that should be read above all other books in in the Bible. Uh, I could go through a list of them, but if you're looking at the New Testament, I would say this, you need to read at least one of the Gospels, and in reading one of the Gospels, you need to read the book of Acts, and you need to read Romans and Hebrews. And if you read those books, you're going to have a good grasp of what the fullness of the Gospel is. But part of the fullness of the Gospel is that Christ not only is our ruler and our commander-in-chief in the holy warfare, but he is also our intercessor. He is our great high priest. So beginning at verse 4, it appears that the psalmist David is now speaking of a revelation that God is now, at that moment, giving him about the Messiah, his king over David, his greater son, who will be an eternal priest. This one, the Messiah, will be a king priest. He will combine in himself, within himself, the two offices which are distinct, very distinct in the old covenant, but they are united in the new covenant in the Lord, Messiah, Jesus. So he first takes up the role of Jesus as the son of David, but he second takes up the role of Jesus as this royal son who also is priest of the Most High God. 
But the pattern of his priesthood is different from that of the Old Covenant. The priesthood of the Old Covenant was based on biology. It wasn't based on sanctification. It was based on who your pappy was. So if your daddy was the priest, you're going to be a priest. And the priest is handed down from father to son, generation after generation after generation. That is not how Christ became priest. He's not a descendant of Levi. He is a descendant of Judah, the royal tribe. And yet he is a priest, the most high priest. Well, he's after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was directly appointed. His priesthood was not based on his father and mother. And it never came to an end. It doesn't mean he lived forever. It simply means it's not recorded that he had a successor. So this is how Christ's priesthood is patterned. Christ receives direct appointment from God, Hebrews chapter 5. In his direct appointment of God, he has an eternal priesthood. Why? Because after making sacrifice from sin, he was resurrected from the dead in an immortal body. He remains our priest forever, making intercession for us. He made the perfect sacrifice, and he applies his perfect sacrifice in heaven. That is, by taking his ascended body back into heaven, he is there as our intercessor. He is there as our basis of acceptance with God. When God looks at you, his son or daughter, through faith in Jesus, he sees you always through his son, our priest and king, Jesus Christ. The Lord himself is at your right hand, at Yahweh's right hand. And now his kingly rule comes into focus on his consummation in the last section of this psalm. Let's look at it. Beginning at verse 5. O Lord, at your right hand, he strikes down kings in the day he unleashes his anger. Now, it says O Lord because this is not the name of Yahweh. This is the name Adoniah. You see, there's a distinction made between Yahweh, where Lord is in all caps, and Yahweh, I mean Lord, where it's just the first letter is caps. Yeah. Well, that's the word Adoniah. It just means ruler. It means Lord, master, king, or king. It's your right hand. He strikes down kings in the day he unleashes his anger. He executes judgment against the nations. He fills the valleys with corpses. He shatters their heads over the vast battlefield. From the stream along the road he drinks, then he lifts up his head. Now, if you're like most people, when you read Psalm 110, you follow it up through verse 4, and you are somewhat rejoicing although you might be mystified a little by verse 3. But when you get to verse 5, all of a sudden you said, man, this is strange territory. This is rulership by means of warfare in which the fury and anger of God is released in judgment upon the nations. What on earth is this? Well, here is what I believe it is. 
this is a description of the final day of battle in the last days. So, let me go back. Verses 3 and 4 presents the reign of the Lord Messiah from heaven now being exercised on earth through and in his people via the word and the spirit. Beginning at verse 5, it speaks of the visible manifestation of this king's coming forth on the last day in judgment on the unbelieving and the ungodly. In other words, this is a description of the final day of battle that's given elsewhere in the prophets and in the New Testament. So let me point you to those and in fact read some of them to you because I think it's very important that we see this truth. You see, I truly believe in this. We must interpret the scripture by the scripture. It's important when we read uh, in the Old Testament that we, as New Testament believers, who are the beneficiaries of the New Covenant, that we begin with the apostolic and the Jesus declaration of the meaning of the Old Testament. In other words, we must take a Christocentric view of the revelation of God. And we interpret the Old Testament in light of Jesus' person and work in the New Testament. This means that our interpretation of Scripture is not in two different categories, one with Israel, the other with the church. And also it means that we don't pay attention to the distinctions. But it does mean that we interpret the old in light of the fulfillment that has taken place in the new. And that's how we must also understand the future. So, David here speaks of the last day of the last days. Hebrews 1 tells us that the last days began with the coming of Christ. So we are all in the last days. We've been in them for 2,000 years. But the scripture also speaks about the last day of the last days. This is when Christ returns at the consummation to exact justice and to establish worldwide righteousness. That's what we've been celebrating the past three Sundays here in our church in Advent. We're looking forward to Christ's second coming. But his second coming is based on the reality of his first coming that we will be celebrating uh, this next Sunday. We will keep celebrating it every day of our lives, don't we? Well, let me go back and show you where the prophet says this in Malachi chapter 4, 1 through 3. And where Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 through 12, and where the Apostle John sees it in an apocalyptic vision given to us in Revelation 6 and again in Revelation 19. I'm going to read through these scriptures for you and let them interpret Psalm 110. Okay? You see if it's true or not. First of all, from Malachi. For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall, be set, shall set them ablaze, says Yahweh of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, 
the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Now, say that. Souls under your feet. Ashes. Psalm 110. He executes judgment against the nations. He fills the valleys with corpses. He shatters their heads over the vast battlefield. Here's Paul writing in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God so that you, they're talking about the Christians who've been persecuted, you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who have afflicted you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe because our testimony to you is believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the Apostle Paul was granted a vision of these things. First, in the opening of the sixth seal in Revelation chapter 6, verse 12 through 17. And when he, that is the lamb who had been slain, receives the scroll and he opens it up, he opens the sixth. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked. Behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now that's an apocalyptic vision. It's what he sees as if this was happening. And that doesn't mean that literally the sun will, but means this is such a cataclysmic event. It uses this kind of language. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come. And who can stand? That sounds like Psalm 110. Or here, here's the ultimate coming of Christ given to us in the book of Revelation. He comes to us on the rider on the white horse. Revelation 19, verse 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, 
arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then the heavens bursts forth into hallelujah for the Lord God the Almighty reigns. This is what's happening. This is what's coming on the earth, brothers. There may be a lot of things that are going to happen in between, but this is the ultimate of where everything is headed. Christ is coming again. So Psalm 110 is a crucial text of Scripture. The New Testament basically interprets it for us all over the place. You find references to it embedded. For Jesus is the one who fulfills it. He is at the right hand of the Father. He reigns now in heaven. He is active in this earth by his Spirit in calling out a people for himself, in taking the enemy's subjects and making them subjects of his kingdom. He's raiding the devil's domain. Thank God he rescued me and you. He's not through. He's still rescuing by means of his word and his spirit. But the day of grace will end the day of grace where people are granted the opportunity to hear and to believe. And those who remain in disbelief, in unbelief, in rebellion, are spiritually dead and they are subject to the wrath of God because of their sin. They do not have the intercessor. They do not have the king of grace. What should be our response to this great revelation of Jesus Christ, Psalm 110? Well, I can do no better than to point you back to Psalm 2. This is Psalm 2. Verse 11, B, and 12. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the kiss of submission. But it's a glad submission because our hearts have been made willing by the movement of the Spirit of God. Our minds have been enlightened by the revelation of the Father. Because of this, give sincere homage to the Son. He is the King. Bow before Him and kiss as if His hand a ring, lest He be angry and you perish on the way, for His wrath will soon be kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. But this is not only the kiss of submission. I submit to you that this is also the kiss of loving, loyal obedience to the king because the heart of the regenerated has been changed. 
we come willingly to him in the day of his grace with hearts of ever-increasing affection. We love him because he first loved us, but we do truly love him. Kiss the Son. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Amen. Well, as our response, I thought we would sing again Psalm 110. Now, Larry tells me.